0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Nathan Zilbert, who is a resident in general surgery, also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan. How's it going?
1: I'm doing great, Amol. How are you doing?
0: I am fantastic. So today, Nathan and I are going to be talking about first, handoff and medical error in hospitals, and second, treating depression in patients with cancer. So it's a great combination, one inpatient sort of process of care, one outpatient ambulatory and intervention study.
1: That's right. We're covering all the bases tonight.
0: So Nathan, before we get started, I just want to make a quick announcement. Our intern, Harim, is conducting an evaluation of our podcast, and we're hoping to get some opinions from our listeners. That means you, And we're asking you to take a few minutes out of your day to please fill out our online survey, which you'll be able to find at healthydebate.ca. This would help us immensely, and we would be very grateful. As always, we're thrilled to be hosted online at Healthy Debate. And we will wrap up our episode again, as always, with our Good Stuff segment, bringing you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So Nathan, after those brief interludes, why don't you kick us off with a conversation about improving hospital handoff and reducing medical error.
1: Thanks, Amol. So this is a very interesting paper that was published this month in the New England Journal of Medicine called Changes in Medical Errors After Implementation of a Handoff Program. And it showed that complications and adverse events were dramatically reduced on an inpatient uh, pediatric wards around North America following implementation of a standardized handover practice for residents. So miscommunications between caregivers is known to be a risk factor for adverse events and the background of the study is that as work hour restrictions have been put in place in the United States for medical residents, the frequency of communications and handing patients over has also increased because people are working shorter and more frequent shifts. So what these guys did was that they implemented a new handover process at nine pediatric hospitals across North America in their inpatient units, and they surveyed the rate of complications in a six-month period before implementation and compared them to a six-month period after implementation, specifically looking at both the rates of medical errors and preventable adverse events along with the quality of written and oral communication at handover time. And what they found was pretty impressive. So they had about 5,000 admissions pre-handover to compare to 5,000 admissions post-handover. They were looking at over 800 residents, and they found that the implementation of their program resulted in a 23% relative risk reduction in medical errors and a 30% relative risk reduction in preventable adverse events. Pretty impressive results from this. uh...
0: Yeah, totally impressive, Nathan. Can you tell me what the absolute change was?
1: Well, I'm sure you'll be surprised to know that the absolute reductions were somewhat less impressive, which is why they're not the headline in the abstract. But uh, for the um, medical errors, the the absolute risk reduction was six per 100 admissions. So it was from 24 uh, to 18 medical errors per 100 admissions. And the preventable adverse event rate went from 4.7 to 3.3 events per 100 admissions. So that's an absolute risk reduction of 1.4. Interesting.
0: Okay. So It sounds like this was a pretty
1: successful intervention. I think so. So I'll tell you a little bit about what they did. So their intervention was centered around uh, a practice which they abbreviate in a helpful mnemonic called uh, I-PASS. So I-PASS stands for... I-PASS, you-PASS, we all-PASS. I-PASS, you-PASS, and we all reduce complications and preventable adverse events, apparently. So you'll see this mnemonic, uh, perhaps a little bit of a stretch. So I stands for illness severity. P, patient summary. A, action list. Those ones are all okay. S, this is where it gets interesting. S, the first S, there's two S's in I-PASS. Situation awareness and contingency plans. And then the last S synthesis by receiver. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's not so bad as far as mnemonics go. I've seen some worse you, ones. For sure. You have, because you read a lot of important, uh, internal medicine trials, but, uh, I think that one S standing for situation awareness and contingency plans is a bit of a stretch. Nevertheless, this, uh, was a mnemonic that they generated after, uh, Single center study that they did, uh, looking at good handover practices at their institution, at, at one of the institutions from the the main authors, and a review of the literature and an effort to make this uh, you know memorable and uh, and implementable uh, for the residents that they were hoping would use it, and they rolled this out with a. Uh, workshop and didactic uh, training session on how to use it a role-playing session a computer model that people could use a faculty development program so that faculty would be able to you know teach residents how to use it and uh, basically what sounds like an advertising campaign they called it a culture change campaign all around the implementation period to uh, promote using the ipass model and they developed specific uh, written handover uh, sheets to be used all uh, covering all of these, uh, you know, the five categories that they deemed to be important. So they put a lot of effort into into rolling this out at each of the sites, it sounds like.
0: Yeah, of course. And so what were the sites that were involved? Was it uh, academic hospitals? It was pediatric hospitals?
1: Yeah, so they were all children's hospitals, nine children's hospitals across North America. They mentioned that there's sort of a range of complexity and acuity between the different sites used. They all were on the general pediatric wards, but I guess that could differ in terms of the type of patients uh, seen from from one center to the others.
0: So you mentioned that this was a pre-post study design where they looked at the pre-intervention phase and compared to the post-intervention phase. How long were each of these phases and when did they do the study?
1: So they did the study between uh, 2011 and 2013. And at each site, the pre-intervention phase was six months. They rolled the intervention out over the subsequent six months and then they did the post implementation analysis in the six months that followed that and they did that in order to ensure that uh, the time of year would be the same at each site when they were comparing uh, the rates of medical errors and complications I guess recognizing the fact that maybe particularly for, for young kids they would uh, expect different rates of these during uh, perhaps the winter months during uh, cough and cold season.
0: So you mentioned that their primary outcome was really to look at the reduction in medical errors. But I guess one of the concerns about rolling out a multifaceted intervention like this would be that you might, in fact, impede workflow or you might, you know, make, make things more difficult for the clinicians. So I guess my question is... How did they make sure that this wasn't interfering with workflow?
1: So they actually, as part of the study, had residents consent to being shadowed by uh, observers during many of their shifts in the pre- and uh, post-implementation period, and they rated what the residents were doing uh, within a large number of different uh, specific activities, but they broke them down into direct patient care, time on the computer, and time engaging in handover, and they actually found that there was no difference... In the in these three main facets, uh, before and after the implementation period. So specifically, they were pleased to report that the amount of time spent on direct patient care was was not uh, decreased oh, as a result of this. As a result of this, and they also surveyed the residents in terms of their own perceived opinion about the quality of their handover, and that improved significantly. In the uh, pre-assessment, and uh, sorry, in the pre-implementation period, just about a, a third rated their the handover quality as good or excellent on a on a five-point scale, and that improved to two-thirds afterwards. And uh, the satisfaction scores about the use of the IPASS bundle of uh, interventions was was good.
0: Interesting. So one of the questions I have is. How did they measure medical errors and how did they classify some of them as preventable versus non preventable?
1: Yeah, so this is definitely uh, the type of study that, you you know, uh, was clearly pretty well funded. They actually had study nurses review all of the charts on all of these units uh, five days a week. So on Mondays, they would review the weekend's charts, and on Mondays, then Tuesday through Friday, they would review every admission that came through the unit. And they went through all the orders and all of the complications in, in a standardized way and identified incidents to be reviewed by a two-physician panel. And then every one of those incidents was rated by a two-physician panel as being either a preventable or non-preventable medical error based on some uh, standards that they had come up with. And they had a system for uh, managing disagreements. So it was a, a relatively, I think, objective and at least structured way of doing this. And while the nurses obviously would have been aware as to uh, you know whether this was pre or post implementation, the physician reviewers were not. This, that was all done after the fact.
0: Interesting. So that's a, um, I guess, a pretty commonly used method of active surveillance for medical error. And it sounds like that's what they used. And you're right. It's pretty resource intensive. The question I have for you is, do you think that this kind of work is transferable outside of the academic environment?
1: Well, I, I think so. And I, I mean, obviously this is just my opinion, but I, I think as we have seen with our own training as residents, these sorts of uh, changes in work hours restrictions, I think we can also see that there are lots of uh, you know, attending physician practices where similar issues are arising. In, in general surgery, a lot of hospitals, both academic training programs and community hospitals without a regular cohort of residents have acute care surgery. Uh, teams where a different surgeon is responsible for a group of patients and then they change over every week obstetrics units whether they have uh, residents or not often have uh, you know an on-call in-house obstetrician that changes after a 12-hour shift ICUs uh, general internal medicine wards lots of examples so I don't think that it uh, I think it, it has a lot to do with just changes in the in the workflow of physicians in general not just in residency training programs and I think while, this IPAS intervention, you could, you know, uh, tinker with it for an individual uh, practice setting. Some of it may be more or less appropriate, whether you're talking about uh, residents or, or staff physicians, I'm sure you would tinker it for different specialties. But uh, I think it's not a huge stretch to conclude that a system like this implemented in a rigorous way in any of these types of settings, likely could result in, in, a, in an improvement, perhaps not to the same extent, that was shown here, maybe more or less depending on the circumstance, but uh, a rigorous handover process seems like a, a good idea in all these settings, and they've been able to quantify this in this one setting for uh, postgraduate pediatrics trainees.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. So, Nathan, why don't you tell me what the major takeaway point was from this study?
1: The major takeaway point from this study is that the implementation of a standardized handoff practice, the I pass bundle in this case, was uh, shown to result in a significant reduction in medical errors and adverse events with a relatively straightforward intervention that didn't detract from patient care and was actually well received among the uh, the end users the, the residents involved so i think it's a it's an important and uh, very interesting finding
0: absolutely okay let's change gears and talk about treating depression in patients with cancer the results of the smart oncology 2 trial and i haven't looked into the precise Letters in this mnemonic, but I bet you that they are much more suspect than the i pass mnemonic Nathan
1: <laughs> is that what you think you you haven't looked into it
0: <laughs> I haven't looked into it I could take a moment, but I feel like it would be relatively low yield use of my time so why don't we move on and instead look to the substance? Of this very high quality work. So, this was a paper published in <laughs> The Lancet. It was a multi-center randomized control trial from Scotland, which showed that an integrated collaborative care model for patients with depression and cancer, comorbid, was very effective in treating depression. So, major depression, as I suppose is not totally surprising, is very prevalent in patients with cancer. It affects about 10% of patients with cancer. And there's a complex relationship between mental health and physical health, as we know, and particularly in this case. So depression affects the subjective experience of anxiety, pain, quality of life, but can also affect things like adherence to cancer therapy. And so managing these comorbid diseases is both important and probably underserviced uh, at the moment. So... These researchers from the UK developed the Depression Care for Patients with Cancer bundle of interventions. And this is a protocolized intervention that we can talk about where a psychiatrist and care manager collaborate with the patient's usual care providers to manage their mental health. And this study was conducted at three sites in Scotland. They enrolled 500 adults who had a favorable prognosis of at least 12 months Uh, and who had major depression
1: for at least four weeks' duration. So how did they identify that uh, group of patients that met those criteria?
0: Yeah, so they actually have this interesting program where specific cancer clinics, the National Health Service Cancer Clinics in Scotland, have a screening service for depression. And so all of the patients who screened positive for depression were considered for being enrolled in this study.
1: Okay, and... Those that were randomized to the intervention group, what was the intervention exactly?
0: So in the usual care group, the oncologist and the primary care provider of that patient were informed that the patient had uh, screened positive for depression and were asked to uh, manage that as they normally would. In the intervention group, in addition to informing the primary care provider and the oncologist, the patient was then enrolled in this program where they were seen by a specialty trained nurse who was supervised by a psychiatrist.
1: Okay, and then what did that nurse do?
0: So the nurse establishes a therapeutic relationship with the patient. Uh, The nurse would provide information about depression and its treatment, uh, would deliver some brief evidence-based psychological intervention, and also routinely monitor the patient's progress using standardized scales, in this case, the patient health questionnaire. The psychiatrist was supervising the treatment, and the goal was to achieve and maintain a treatment target where they would have a 50% drop from their baseline score on that depression scale.
1: Okay. So what did they find?
0: Yeah. So their major outcomes were using standardized questionnaires. They looked at this depression scale using a symptom checklist. And again, their treatment response was defined as a more than 50% reduction. So their primary outcome was the number of patients achieving a treatment response, and then they also looked at secondary outcomes, including all of the different elements of symptoms and quality of life and severity of depression. And their findings are pretty impressive. So in the treatment group, they found that 60% achieved treatment response, and that's compared to only 17% in the usual care group, and that's at a period of 24 weeks follow-up. They also found for their secondary outcomes that depression scores at all time points were lower in the treatment group, that symptoms like anxiety, pain, fatigue, physical functioning, social functioning, overall health, and quality of life were all consistently better in the treatment group. And in terms of the quality of depression care, in the treatment group, 72% of the patients said that they received excellent or very good depression care whereas in the usual care group, only 25% said they received excellent quality depression care. So a pretty dramatic difference in the two groups. What do you think?
1: Well, first, I think that SMART stands for Symptom Management Research Trials. I'm happy to report that to our readers. They've used a typical tactic of a lowercase a in their algorithm, so management includes both M and A. And... Uh, do you think that uh, with Cancer Care Ontario, for example, being a, a similarly overreaching uh, oncology provider for our jurisdiction here, I mean, I think this sounds like something that may be uh, feasible in uh, in Ontario.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think any or organization in which you have relatively centralized service delivery, you could achieve this you would need a certain degree of scale in terms of you need to have a certain critical mass of cancer patients in a in a particular area in order to have a sort of home base for the nurse and the psychiatrist who are delivering the consultative services. Um, and then you would need to have an, a strongly engaged primary care provider and oncologist network. But I, I think this is absolutely feasible and translatable across regions. You know, one of the things you might ask is, uh, is this an expensive intervention?
1: Is this an expensive intervention?
0: That is an outstanding question, Nathan. So, it actually only costed about 600 pounds per patient per year. Now, I guess you could... I could ask, what's that in dollars? (laughs) And I could look it up, but I could give you a ballpark of about a 1,000 Canadian dollars. You know... In my mind, considering that there's substantial improvements in quality of life and depressive symptoms, it seems like it's certainly a cost-effective intervention.
1: Yeah, I think they've done a good job with all of the secondary outcomes that they assessed to show the wide-ranging impact of this intervention on physical and emotional and overall quality of life. That uh, you know, you you can you can argue about. The value of it, but I mean, I think it it certainly shows uh, a a more wide-ranging impact than even just addressing their depression scores, which is an important enough outcome, but it's more far-reaching than that.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Now, there's a couple of questions around, you know, why this intervention was successful. So one of the striking findings here is that usual care for these patients was seen to be quite poor, right? Patients' perceptions of the care was that it was very poor. And in fact, patient response to intervention was quite poor. Only 17% of the usual care patients had a treatment response, even though in this setting, like usual care was already enhanced in the sense that the patient's primary care provider and oncologist were notified that the patient had screened positive for depression.
1: Yeah, I think that likely speaks to the the pressures on clinicians to handle for for lack of a better word, the sort of bare bones, you know, oncology treatment at the expense sometimes of being able to counsel and advise and support patients going through a difficult uh, time when, you know, there's a pressure of just getting them to their through chemo or checking their counts, following up on their scans and all the, the sort of, uh, call it, the, you know, the hard medicine and the, uh, the human side may be neglected at the, uh, at the, uh, cost of needing to get through the, the high volumes of, and meeting, you know, especially in the UK, I, I understand they have pretty, uh, uh, rigid targets of, you know, time to referral and time to first treatment, and they probably are, are under a lot of pressure. So having this backup basically to assist with the, Care, especially when they already are essentially screening these people to know who would benefit from that support most, uh, seems actually like a a very help, very helpful to sort of frontline clinicians.
0: Yeah, and I think that your point about the human side of it is really well taken and important. The other point is also in terms of expert management of uh, an important condition. So one of the important differences between the two groups was in the way that their antidepressants were prescribed. So the majority of these patients ended up on an antidepressant medication, 80% in the intervention group and 60% in the usual care group. But one of the striking differences is how actively the antidepressant medication was managed in the intervention group in the sense that dose adjustments were made much more frequently or the drug was changed if there was not an apparent benefit. Whereas in the usual care group, that happened much less frequently. And I think part of it speaks to, in a sense, what you said, the throughput pressures that make it harder to deal with all those extra issues, but also part of it is a mindset issue. I think we know that subspecialists or those who are focused on a particular dimension of care are more likely to be attuned to the subtleties of that problem. And so having that kind of contribution to this patient's care actually is really important.
1: Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense.
0: So let's talk briefly about the limitations of this study before we wrap up. So one important thing is that 90% of the patients in this study were women and 80% of the patients had either breast or a gynecological cancer. So that's probably the major limitation to generalizability here. And, you know, the authors say that some other work suggests that this is likely to be beneficial. And I suspect that's probably the case. But that's just the one caveat, I would add.
1: And, when the, and, and the good prognosis, I guess, was, uh, was one of the uh, inclusion criteria, too, right? Um,
0: yeah, it was a year long intervention. And so they wanted to make sure that people had a prognosis of more than 12 months, right?
1: Right. So I mean, I guess that also could uh, be important in terms of, you know, how to use this resource. Whereas, you know, people with a poor prognosis, I'm sure could could benefit as well, maybe would be less cost effective in that population. But
0: yeah, I guess depending on, on what the metric is, but I, I agree. So that, that becomes a, a bit of a tricky question. So why don't I wrap up and May say that the main takeaway point from this paper is that depression is highly prevalent in patients who have cancer. Usual care for those patients is potentially highly suboptimal. And an integrated collaborative model of care to specifically treat depression in cancer patients was shown to be highly effective at these centers in Scotland, which triggers important questions about how we care for these patients in other centers around the world.
1: Great, very interesting amount.
0: All right, thanks for the conversation, Nathan. Let's move on to our good stuff segment. So Nathan, tell me what captured your attention from the world of medicine this week.
1: So I uh, follow Bill Gates on Twitter and he posted this article on his blog uh, that was uh, just uh, came out yesterday. It was written by uh, a doctor uh, from Nigeria who actually uh, contracted Ebola. Uh, Her name's Ada Igono, and she writes a very uh, lengthy but eloquent description of being both a caregiver and a patient, uh, and it's uh, a really fascinating read that I would highly recommend.
0: Oh, that's a great recommendation, Nathan. Thanks. My recommendation comes referred to me by the executive producer of our little podcast, Andreas Lopakis. So, Andrea suggested a paper from JAMA Internal Medicine about medical conspiracy theories and health behavior in the United States. So, the authors of this paper used a nationally representative survey of Americans to determine the extent of what they call medical conspiracism or adherence to conspiracy beliefs about about medicine. So, for example, the two most common ones, Nathan, maybe you can Guess. What do you think is the most commonly held medical conspiracy
1: theory? Vaccines cause autism.
0: Yes, absolutely. So that was number one. So the sum of their findings was that half of Americans agree with at least one medical conspiracy theory. And almost 20% agree with three or more medical conspiracy theories. The population of people that agree with three or more medical conspiracy theories have different health behaviors from the rest of the population. They are more likely to take herbal supplements or use alternative medical therapies. They are more likely to buy farm stand or organic foods and use herbal supplements. And they are less likely to use sunscreen or get Influenza vaccinations or annual checkups. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, now the thing that's interesting here is that it's a substantial portion of people. And the authors of this paper argue that, you know, we as healthcare practitioners would do well not to pathologize this group of people or argue that they're fringe and recognize instead that this is a common set of beliefs or perspectives and recognizing which people have that might actually help us provide more patient-centered care.
1: Well, I think that's that's definitely a fair point. And we see this all the time of people, uh, you know, they're sort of refusing surgery and being surprised or refusing chemotherapy and being surprised. And obviously, we uh, do need to try and figure out ways to convey our our opinions and recommendations to people that are in their best interest, and I think uh, I think you're right. I think having some insight into the the prevalence, at least south of the border, of these attitudes uh, may may certainly be helpful. So that's an interesting one.
0: Perfect. So thanks to Andreas, and that cues me to remind any of our listeners: if you have a great idea for a good stuff uh, article, please send it our way. You can post online at healthydebate.ca, or you can tweet. Any one of us, you could tweet us at RoundsTable or tweet me at at Amol A. Verma. Tweet me at at Ann There you go. Or tweet Bill Gates. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Nate. Bye-bye. Bye.